It's a very great pleasure for me to welcome you all to this special panel discussion of, of the Writers Make Worlds project, a discussion that is also at the same time a launch of Derek Attridge's fine new book, The Experience of Poetry, which is just quite recently published. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Elika Burma and I am the PI, the Principal Investigator on the Writers Make Worlds project and I'm also Professor of World Literature and English in the English faculty here at Oxford. We're delighted to be able to hold this event at Torch and in fact we've borrowed for the, our purposes the very effective Torch <coughs> book at lunchtime format of a series of short interdisciplinary responses to a new book followed by a response by the author. This cross-humanities approach can provoke some lively discussion and we are sure today will be no exception. Writers Make Worlds, the website project, and for those of you who don't know it, I would recommend that you go and have a look. It's a very, very lively site. Um, Writers Make Worlds and the related Great Writers Inspire at Home series of talks explored and explores questions of identity, belonging, and reception in black British and British Asian writing in the main. But the project also always considers reception and readership. We consider attentiveness to readership and reception as key to how we approach this and other literary writing, how we come to this writing and how this writing speaks to us. These concerns, we believe, are as important to think about in respect of this contemporary literature as any other. Just as an example, I would refer you to Nobese Phillips' performance of her poem, Zong, on the Writers Make Worlds website, which <coughs> demonstrates those features of rhythm and incantation that Derek talks about in relation to older poetry and song in the book. So, though the subject of Derek's book, poetry from Homer to Shakespeare may not seem directly related to this far more contemporary work. What links the book to the project is this crucial question of our understanding as readers and listeners, our experience of the literary, a question that is as important to consider in relation to writing now as to the writing of the past. That However, through our reading, through our listening, through our experience of the language, remains present to us today. So it seemed an incredible piece of good fortune to be able to feature Derek's book on the experience of poetry in our Writers Make World series, and to be able to welcome such a distinguished panel to discuss the book with him. I'd like to turn now to welcome our panelists and introduce them in the order in which they will be speaking. As some of you know, just to give you a quick fill-in on the format, as some of you who, who know Book at Lunchtime will know, each speaker will speak for up to seven minutes. I'm going to try to be a very strict chair. And then Derek will have a chance to respond for around the same time. We'll then give the panelists a chance to respond to De Derek if they wish, and then we will open to the audience for questions and more discussion. We will end this formal part in about an hour, an hour five, hour and ten, because this is a launch and we have wine and we have nibbles and we have books to look at, admire and indeed purchase. 
So let me move on to uh, the introductions. I've kept them quite short. Um, first up, Stephen Harrison is Professor of Latin Literature and Fellow and Tutor in Classics here at Corpus Christi College. He has published on, amongst other topics, Virgil, Horace, on the Roman novelist Apuleius, on Latin literature in general, and on the reception of classical literature. Second, Helen Cooper is Professor of Medieval and Renaissance English at Cambridge, and her recent publications include Shakespeare and the Medieval World. Third, Professor Mohammed Saleh Omri is a specialist in Arabic literature who teaches in Oriental Studies at St. John's. His books include The Novelization of Islamic Literatures, The Intersections of Western, Arabic, Persian, Urdu, and Turkish Traditions. Fourth, Kathy Schrank is Professor of Tudor and Renaissance Literature, and she has published, amongst other, Publications, Writing the Nation in Reformation England, 1530 to 1580, and the Oxford Handbook of Tudor Literature, uh, which was co-edited with Mike Pinkham. As for Derek himself, Derek Attridge, who, needless to say, I suppose, needs no introduction, Derek Attridge is Professor of Literature at the University of York, and he has published, among many other books, um, favorites to many people in this room, um, the Singularity of Literature, The Work of Literature, as well, well as Influential Writing on J.M. Kutzi. The Experience of Poetry is his latest book. Stephen, I'd like to hand over to you. Let's give them all a hand. Well, thank you, Annika. This is a remarkable work, this, this book. Uh, covers a mere 24 centuries. <laughs> uh, my job is to cover a third of it, mostly uh, uh, the first millennium of that 2.4 millennia, the part that covers the, the Greek and Roman world. And uh, it's, I think it's just over seven years since Derek and I first met to talk about this. And uh, it's been very interesting to see how it's developed. Uh, I think. With this work, you get the benefit both of the macro and of the micro. You get the benefit of uh, a large and ambitious structure, chronologically and thematically, and also some really well-pointed readings, uh, not just of text, but also of, of books and artifacts. And I think uh, this balance between the micro and the macro is one of many, many balances which this volume uh, manages. It certainly takes up key themes in classical scholarship about the reception of literature, about performance, about readership, about the balance between the two. And again, the theme of balance. Uh, the larger scale enables some really interesting cultural generalizations, which will be very useful to classicists. So to begin, as always, with Homer. And of course, with Homer, the issue of orality is primary. And Derek quite rightly recognizes that the Homeric poems are orally composed and written down later. And I think his contribution here is to point to the grace and skill, as he says, of the performances. Uh, as he says again, it's not IT cutting and pasting the way that oral poems are generated. There is a master mind. And I think many classicists would agree with that. And the prestige of performing bards in Homer is shown by the fact that one of them is Achilles. When Achilles is sulking in his tent and not fighting, he's actually singing the Claire Androne, the famous deeds of men. 
So it's not just done by a kind of cultural underclass. The big guys do it too in Homer. He rightly stresses the performative context of archaic Greek poetry, whether these are public, we think, say, of the victory odes of Pindar, these sort of Olympic celebrations, which were obviously performed in a public environment, or, uh, and we sometimes forget this, the private audiences for forms like epigram and elegy. These were generally probably sung at aristocratic symposia to smaller and more elite audiences. Of course, we all know that Attic tragedy, Greek tragedy performed in Athens, was performed at major public festivals. And I think I really like the continuing centrality of poetic performers, which is in Derek's book. I, I particularly like the examination of Plato's Ione, uh, the, the rhapsode, the public poet who performs Homer and similar poems uh, in festivals, gets a whole dialogue to himself in Plato. And of course, Plato has a very interesting relationship with poetry and the performance of poetry in the Republic. Key point, I think, about the rise of prose as a result of literacy. Of course, verse is much easier to manage in an oral context because of memorability and metre. But it's also interesting that we find it later in some unusual context. For example, the choice of Lucretius in the first century BC in Latin to write about Epicurean microphysics in hexameter verse, not the obvious form. But of course, it has memorability on its side, as well as, in fact, a long poetic tradition. He makes an extremely important point about the Hellenistic period and the primacy of book poetry. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, the late Alan Cameron, for example, about the balance between uh, performance and reading in the Hellenistic period. I think Derek gets the balance just right. Uh, there is evidence for performance, but we ought to think of Hellenistic poetry, poetry composed in the three centuries after the death of Alexander up to the Rome period, as primarily the poetry of books. And that's important because it has consequences for the way we feel about this literature and the way that we interpret it. So things like sophisticated texture, de dedicated literary effects, these are appropriate to a book poetry and not so easy to manage in an oral poetry. I think also he gets the balance right in the debate about performance of uh, poetry at Rome. Again, this has been a big topic in modern scholarship, Peter Wiseman, the late Tom Habeneck, Michelle Nari. And he, I think, very nicely focuses on Catullus, who provides evidence both for poetic readings and for performances, but also is a Hellenistic poet, poet of the book. Uh, and I think this works very well. Very interesting idea about how uh, the primacy of book uh, poetry stimulates revision. And here the key figure is Ovid, who, as people like Francesca Martelli have noted, is the reviser par excellence, the person who does two editions of his Amores, who does a kind of retread of his Herodes, probably in exile. So I think the interaction between uh, writing and performance and literary history is very striking. Recitatio, the public uh, recitation of poetry, was a big uh, thing at Rome. And I think here, again, Derek has very good judgment in seeing that some poets did it and liked it, and some poets didn't like it. Ovid did it. He was a natural performer. He was trained as a rhetorician, as he tells us. 
Whereas Horace, who probably wasn't a natural rhetorician, didn't like it. So again, I think what I find powerful about the argument is that it's not too much of a generalization. It's able to discriminate between the individual practice of sophisticated poets. I think it honors the poets in the way that they differ. Very interesting material about epitaphs. Now, in the ancient world, of course, your average person would have their primary experience of verse would be in reading epitaphs, just as in the 19th century, people's primary experience of verse would be in the performance and list performance of and listening to Christian hymns in Europe. And I think one thing about this book, which is very strong, is its awareness of the non-book format of literature, the, the interesting artifacts that, that we find. I particularly like the wonderful five hexameters from York, a bit of Campolinismo <laughs> there, on, on the 13-year-old girl. It's a very charming and very interesting thing. Big, big argument here uh, about late antiquity. Uh, late antiquity, of course, is the period of, of Christianity. Is Christianity uh, the force behind the adoption of the codex of the flat book as opposed to the roll book? Well, at least partly, but of course, Christianity is also the introduction of a whole new performance tradition, the liturgical tradition, the tradition of Ambrosian hymns and of all kinds of ritual. And again, I think the book is very conscious of both those things. So my final judgment would be that it's, it's a great ride. There's a wonderful perspective on a very long, on a long durée of, of literary history, which is very valuable. There's some great readings of individual poems and artifacts. Uh, and I think above all, a great balance of judgment between uh, the consumption of poetry as performance and the consumption of poetry as read literature. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. Well, I suppose I'm probably here to talk about the Middle Ages, but I'm not actually going to do that much because it was the book as a whole that impressed me. It's a great book, and if you've read it, you will know that. But like any great book, it made me aware of more questions, not because Derek doesn't address them, very often he does, but because they sharpened quite a lot of things in my mind. What the book does in the first instance, as Stevens just said, is address that disjunction in the experience of poetry, whether you hear it or read it, whether it comes to you through your ears or your eyes. And until good literacy became the norm, and to an extent still in things like poetry slams and uh, poems on the radio and so on, the ears were very much dominant in reception and also in composition. Maybe now poets write their poems on the page until very recently, certainly through the 19th century and later, they composed them in the head and then wrote them down. And those two things, eyes and ears, give you a different experience, not least because hearing privileges meter and rhythm, which is the other great central concern of Derek's book. It might look as if meter is a slightly different matter from reading on the page or hearing, but in fact, they're very closely related because prosody changes with time and language. And Derek insists absolutely rightly 
that prosody metrics are key to the experience of poetry, however you experience it. And that prompts three thoughts, which I'll go through fairly quickly, very quickly. First, silent reading, which is one of the great historical issues. When did people start reading silently? We know St Ambrose did. Was anyone else around that same time? There's a great big gap in our knowledge there. But silent reading, such as we do now, normally, risks losing that sense of metre. And that tends to happen too in translations. Um, sadly, including this book, and it would have to be entirely done online for us to be able to get anything different, to go back to hear our best bet what Greek poetry or medieval poetry sounded like, though there are very useful, usefully some websites listed in the notes, so we can at least go and try and hear them. Like some other people here at least. I did the Cambridge tragedy paper as part of my undergraduate degree. But I was flattened when I first heard the Cambridge Greek play. The first one I heard was Prometheus Unbound. And those pounding rhythms from the chorus were just completely transformative for how I experienced Greek poetry. And that's so important. And I just had no idea as to what Greek poetry sounded like. And we need to hear more. Translations can never give you that, whatever they may do for the sense. Associated with that, very much as a modern phenomenon, is a very widespread insensitivity to metre. Or never mind insensitivity, maybe I should say ignorance. That was encouraged, of course, by the rise of free verse from early in the 20th century. But most of our students, despite having studied Shakespeare in school, have no idea even about blank verse. When I was working in Oxford, I used to give my freshers a, a literacy test, which included whether they could put apostrophes in the right place. Um, some people's equality is more equal than others. You can try that if you get bored. Um, but some, some of them were blank verse lines where, in which they could mark the stresses, including one of Marlowe's most famous, to entertain divine's inocrity. Not one student in ten didn't scan that as to entertain divine's enocrate, which is not the same thing at all. <laughs> And I really had to explain to them what was going wrong. It still happens with almost any Shakespeare play performed outside the RSE or the Globe. They don't really get the blank verse. And even supposedly scholarly commentaries often can't even recognise metre. I was working recently on Abraham <coughs> Fleming's Bucolics and translations in the 1570s. He translated it twice, once into rhymed fourteeners and once into unrhymed. And the second version is described as having no regular metre. My reaction to it is that it's, they're exceptionally good because his 14ers don't give you that thump in the middle. Now is the last age come whereof Sibylla's first foretold, and now the Virgin come again and Saturn's kingdom come. And sometimes he'll even split a word in the middle, and to help you along, he'll put a little hyphen in the middle. Thou shalt resemble Pan in sing hyphen ing in the woods with me. Thou shalt resemble Pan in singing in the woods with me. It's breaking the rules about how you write 14ers, which should be a clear eight and six, 
but breaking those rules creates better lines. Which prompts a third thought, that even now, when we read poetry on the page, as we mostly do, it still seems to me absolutely essential to hear it on our heads, to sound it out mentally. This is how what Derek calls the Dolmic works. He's written rather more on that in his other books than this one, but it's in here too, which is a very good thing. The Dolnik being the sort of ancestor of sprung rhythm, where you start from a more or less recognisable metric basis, but then play around with it, do wonderful things with it, where you go beyond the basically iambic or whatever. And that, in turn, makes me wonder when we accuse earlier poets of breaking rules, metrical rules, or their scribes of making errors, whether they're copying quantitative or syllabic or stress-based verse, then those errors are perhaps not necessarily due to incompetence. After all, if the rules were so absolute, they wouldn't make those mistakes. But because but it may be that they make those mistakes because to the ear, whether outward or inward, such lines may actually work better. And that may be where much of the most powerful experience of poetry lies, in the moments that don't follow those strict metrics, that do break the rules in a way that we need ears, inward or outward, to really appreciate. Thank you. Um, I remember, I think it was around 1990, right before his death, the, uh, the American um, poet laureate uh, Howard Nemerov said, we happened to be in the same university, he said something about poets and he said they're like pigeons in a square, in a public square. If they disappear one day, people will miss them, but I don't think they'll do much to get them back. <laughs> I, was, I, was bit, I was taken aback by that, because I was coming from this tradition where really, if poets missed, uh, basically it is a big deal, uh, the Arabic tradition of, of poetry. So um, Derek's book, I think, sets out to disprove that, to disprove this kind of perception, or at least to show that poetry was experienced differently and continues to be so today. And there is a need, therefore, to recover that history and trace moments where the materiality of this experience can be uh, detected. And here he also talks about things that are close to it, like, for example, music and drama. Now, this cross-historical approach gave me the opportunity to look at Arabic poetry in the long durée. That's probably an intended consequence of use of your book. Um, so, but, but, but how the past practices of this poetry, uh, Arabic poetry, have uh, re-survived today. So I, had, I have I read the book basically comparatively with the Arab uh, world in mind very, very briefly here. I basically wanted to raise three points only. So one I call epic and qasida. So in the Greek tradition, uh, and again, I rely on the book, on Derek's book, the epic composed orally was the origin. So in Arabic, the poetic record we have come to us, comes to us really in terms of single poems, which we call qasida, which may or may not contain epic elements like heroism, journey, and so on. In other words, what an audience experienced was a single, relatively short poem, which made the idea of performance somewhat easier, memorization and dissemination as well. Now, could this be the key difference which puzzled the Arab translators of Aristotle's poetics in addition to the absence of drama? 
Now, later on, there were, of course, epics and sagas and usually sung or recited in the help, with the help of instrument, for example, the Rababa uh, for, the, for the Sirat Bani Hilal, which is the, uh, a long epic originated in the 11th century and still performed in Egypt today. Now, the social role of the professional singer in the Greek epic described by Derek coincides rather well with the role of the classic Arabic poets, for example, the idea of entertainment, the idea of pride, rebuke, propaganda, and so on. But some of these poets would become epic heroes in their own right. For example, Antara, a pre-Islamic poet, would have an epic of his own. So along with this tradition, and until today, we have Qasida in the vernacular languages, or dialects, which keep the same themes and structures and the same methods of composition, improvisation, duels, and so on. These were characteristic of the classical Qasida, but but today, the classical Qasida more or less disappeared. But its dialectical counterpart has not disappeared, and it thrives today in the Gulf region, in Egypt, and in the Maghreb. This raises the question. This phenomenon seems to me a challenge to any linear progression of poetry towards reading. Uh, this is a question for, for Arabic literary historians. The second point is the idea of craft or gift. So Derek tells us that the word poet meant maker until the 18th century, but that the idea of gift or talent is also ubiquitous in history, in the history of poetry. Now, in the Arabic context, this has been looked at under the idea of sina'a, which is craft, and taba, which is a natural gift. Now, Derek mentions an interesting story about uh, an intriguing man who was granted the gift of composing poetry in his sleep. And he would go on to versify the whole Bible in Old English. Now, I remember as a child, I was fascinated by an illiterate neighbor who was basically the star poet and singer of all the weddings and so on. I was wondering how, how he does it. So my mother solved this mystery for me. And he said that basically in his sleep, a white bearded man came to him and he said, would you like a healer or a killer? And the poet decided to have a healer. And from the next day, he started saying poetry, but he lived and died in poverty. The word healer meant gift, while killer meant material wealth. I, I happen to think my mother was basically giving me a lesson. <laughs> but, but, it, but, it, but it clearly did not work. So Arabic biographical dictionaries and books of poetry and criticism and the many compilations we have, such as the 10th century 20-volume encyclopedia called the the Book of Songs, Kitab al-Aghani, they talk about poets who had what they called shaitan al-shar, or the devil of poetry who inspired them. But poets were seen as seers, they were seen as prophets. But there is another tradition by which also each major poet would have his own rawi, and these are narrators, people who memorize their poetry and, and, and uh, uh, propagate it. The final point is the idea of truth and pleasure. And Derek pursues Plato's distinction between philosophy and poetry, where the first produces virtue, while the second sees pleasure as an end in itself. He pursues it in the, in the reader, in the listener, rather patiently across time. Now, in Arabic contests, some of you may know, the Quran explicitly considered poets liars and seducers of people away from virtue and truth, from kathabun yatba'uhum in that sense. But the pleasure of poetry in court settings and competitions and uh, 
uh, etc., is recorded in many compilations known as Adab and elsewhere. One strand of this is the idea of tarab. The term broadly means pleasure produced by singing or poetry. Nowadays, the term designates the type of music that is classical but elicits pleasure as opposed to popular music, so to speak. So courts in Baghdad and later Andalusia provide ample examples of this activity which combined poetry and singing. Now, troubadour poetry, which studied by Derek in the context of French vernacular traditions, is said in some critical interpretations to be derived from this Arabic term tarab. And I kept thinking from a comparative perspective, comparative literary perspective, one could see what could be gained from the widening of the performance and uh, experience traditions if one looked outside of Europe. Um, so many thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here to celebrate uh, the experience of poetry and Derek's considerable achievement in producing it. As my recent report for OUP began, this is quite simply an extraordinary book. Uh, and Stephen has uh, gestured towards its range, 24 centuries, but it also covers at least five different regions, producing that combination of breadth, but also detail uh, that Stephen also uh, quite rightly commended. Um, but I also felt the book was doing something quite different. It's not a history of poetry in the West. It does a really crucial job in putting the reader or the hearer of poetry back in the centre of the picture, so giving the receiver of poetry a crucial role in the creation of poetic effect and affect. Um, so it's a bit like the um, kind of poetic equivalent of that old um, conundrum about whether if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, the tree makes a sound. Uh, I can't answer that one, but perhaps Derek can. So it's the idea that a poem needs a reader to be a poem. Uh, and in the book's opening pages, we're asked, what is a poem's mode of existence? Does this poem exist as the printed block of the words on the page? Is it the vocal realisation of those words? Uh, and in practical terms, this has meant unravelling how the changing and multiplying ways in which people received poetry hourly, in individual handwritten copies, or in identical, almost identical, printed forms, how this alters both the composition of poetry, but also the experience and the conditions of its reception. Um, and that attention to the multiplying ways in which poet, people might experience poetry is significant. The book quite rightly challenges a Walter Ongian trajectory, whereby orality is replaced by script, which is then replaced by print. So instead, the book maps out the ways in which older forms continue to coexist. And I think not just externally, but also potentially affecting the sensation of reading. So when I read something on the page, for example, I hear it in my head at the same time. And as Derek's book reminds me, I'm a bit like Spencer's Arthur in that way, apparently, who, while seemingly reading chronicles silently to himself in Alma's library, is quite ravished with delight to hear the royal offspring of his native land. So reading poetry, in other words, can be a multi-sensory experience. It's not necessarily purely visual or purely aural. I don't have synesthesia, but when reading poetry in my head, I also tend to feel the weight of words in my mouth at the same time. 
So the experience of poetry as a particularly intense form of literature has physiological consequences, it seems, at least for this reader. Um, and I really very much admired the way in which Derek brought together the aural and the visual uh, in the book and paid particular attention, as Helen has mentioned, to meter, which is something that readers can find difficult. Um, so the transhistorical and transcultural elements of Derek's work bring obvious challenges, not least are the gaps in the evidence, particularly the earlier back that we go, and the frequent need to rely on fictive sources for evidence of what happened in real life, um, or the ways in which the words used to convey the processes of poetic production and reception, such as sing, often have a degree of cultural lag, clinging on even as poetry moves onto the page and then into print. And then we have the impossibility, I think, of reconstructing imaginatively or in practice the experience of the past. So this book is about the experience of poetry, but it's a real challenge to actually um, reconstruct that past. So, for example, even if you can reproduce or approximate what something sounded like, as with David Crystal's really commendable original pronunciation Shakespeare, our aural reception of it can never resemble that of its earliest audiences, because the original pronunciation is strange to us. It stands out. It's different. Whereas um, to them, it would be routine and everyday. Um, such experiments are valuable. They teach us certain things, that pairings like love and prove are actual rhymes, not I rhymes, as I was taught in school. That the poetic loins, lines, makes a ready pun with bodily ones. And that with its elisions and preponderance of shorter vowels, original production the pronunciation significantly speeds up the pace of performance. Um, but what these experiments can't recapture is how audiences experience the sound of the words and their cognitive effect. Original pronunciation is no more authentic than original dress. Uh, and one of the really impressive achievements of Derek's book is that it doesn't hide these challenges. It shares them with its readers. It's very upfront about the problems of evidence and the lack and the limits thereof and also the different ways in which the evidence might be interpreted. And it invites its readers to share in the process of reconstruction. So imagine is an instruction that peppers the book, because frequently that's what we need to do along with Derek as the author. Um, another of the book's many achievements is to acknowledge the pleasure of poetry. And I've got some extremely vivid and quite early memories of the sensory effect of poetry. Um, T.S. Eliot's Journey of the Magi to Preschool Nativity Play. And it was only when I was doing my A-levels and got my wasteland set text that I, and at the back of that is the Journey of the Magi, that I rediscovered Eliot and realised what I'd heard uh, all those years ago. Or encountering Ariel's Four Fathom Five, uh, read, not sung, at primary school. And it was the sonic quality of those works to which I must have been responding. I wasn't a child genius, I hate that. But the sound of those poems stuck with me, uh, even when I didn't actually know what they were. Uh, and this brings me to my final point and the challenges of accommodating changing aesthetic tastes in a trans-historical, trans-cultural study such as this one. Because tastes do shift just as language does um, over time and over culture. Um, the examples I've just cited, Eliot, Shakespeare, are recognisably transcendent achievements. But what about poetry which is now regarded as less successful? Uh, and here I'm continuing my quixotic one-person campaign to rehabilitate Poulter's measure. <laughs> Couplets of long, alternating lines of 12 and 14 syllables. I want to resist the narrative that that is an inherently clumsy uh, um, uh, uh, metre, a terrible metre, C.S. Lewis called it. 
Um, so prompted by Derek's book and its transhistorical project to focus our attention onto the experience of poetry, I want to call for us to think carefully about whether we always read with sufficient patience and sufficient open-earedness to the sounds of the past. Uh, so thank you, Derek, and thank you. Well, I want to begin with thanks. Many thanks. Thanks to Elitha for proposing that we do a launch in this wonderful context. And thanks to everybody who's made today possible. Thanks to you four for reading, thinking, and speaking today. Thanks to Jacqueline Norton and OUP for, oh, thanks to Jacqueline for encouraging this book from the start and not being put off by the thought that it was going to be 230, 240,000 <laughs> words. Uh, and thanks to the press for producing what I think is a very handsome book. I wanted it to be handsome. I wanted it to have lots of illustrations. Uh, uh, and OUP have done a wonderful job. And at a very reasonable price, I have to say. <laughs> thanks to all of you for coming this afternoon. And um, thanks to all those who helped in the writing of this book. Uh, there's a long list of acknowledgements in the book itself, so I won't repeat those here. Um, they included, of course, thanks to the book's five readers who all did a wonderful job, three of whom are sitting to my left. Um, I have to say the book, all through the period of finishing the, the manuscript and sending it to, to OUP to send to readers, was called the performance of poetry. And it was really thanks to two or three of the readers who kept using this word experience and that, that made me realize my primary interest was in how, as um, speakers have said, how poetry was heard, how poetry was read on the page, how poetry was received. Clearly, performance is absolutely part of that. But uh, I was very happy to actually change the title from the performance of poetry, which I as, had been thinking of it for 20 years, to uh, the experience of poetry. Um, I also wanted to sneak in, nobody's commented on this, the, the subtitle, Homer's Listeners, fair enough, to Shakespeare's readers. We don't often think of Shakespeare as someone writing for readers, but of course I was interested in his poetry, and um, The Rape of Lucrece, uh, Venus and Adonis were immensely popular poetry books bought and read uh, in large numbers. It was hugely successful and, and much more reputable in, in that way than as a mere playwright. So thank you for all your comments. Um, I was waiting for all the disagreements, particularly from the experts in the specific fields. Uh, I was very aware in writing the book that I was stepping outside my comfort zone. I did do a PhD thesis I don't know, 40 years ago in, uh, in the Elizabethan period, so I felt when, it, when I reached that period I was sort of coming home, although I had uh, a lot of catching up to do. But in the earlier periods, um, a lot of what I was doing was discovering for myself some of the riches um, of, the, of the earlier periods. Um, two writers that you didn't mention, Stephen, that I was particularly uh, delighted to find was Callimachus in the Alexandrian period. I had no idea 
there was such a brilliant poet lurking, lurking under under rather a lot of scholarship, but but actually very very much alive today. And in the um, period of late antiquity, Claudian, who seems to me a fascinating poet whom I knew nothing about um, until I started this project. Um, I have to say, I started it with a completely false assumption that what I was going to do was, period by period, I was going to read some primary material, but mostly secondary material, so I could see what the settled agreement was on the issues of performance and, and experience of how poetry was, was, was conveyed from the poet to the, to the receiver. And in every single period, I found there was a debate raging. There would be oralists and literalists, and the, from, from Homer right through to, to 1616 when I, when I stopped. Um, there are debates. So I, it was a much longer and bigger task than I'd ever imagined. In, in every case, I had to not only read a lot of the primary material to make up my own mind, but to try and judge the arguments that were flying back and forth about about these issues. So reading a lot of um, very smart people who couldn't agree with one another. Um, so so reading it was uh, writing this book was a was a, a long drawn out pleasure. Um, it was great to discover so much poetry that I hadn't been familiar with, um, and. Uh, a challenge, but um, it was a relief after 20 years to, to have, it, have it done. Um, I, I will say something which, which will pick up a comment, comment from um, both Helen and Kathy. Yes, there's a lot of emphasis on the importance of the sound of the poem in the hearer's ear or in the reader's imagination if it's silently read on, in a book. Um, but I did find, somewhat to my surprise, that the work I had done as a PhD student in the 1960s um, was actually relevant to a much broader historical sweep. That's to say, when the quantitative basis of Latin and Greek disappeared as pronunciation changed, but Latin poetry in particular remained culturally the, the most significant in all European countries, um, it was read in a way that didn't allow any oral, any sonic meter to emerge. So meter for a long period, the, the highest form of meter, was actually silent, processed by the mind on the page, uh, or perhaps when it was spoken, but not a matter of rhythm as, as we think of it. Um, and then contrasted with that, with the vernacular poems, which had a you know a steady thump, and for many this is what I did my PhD thesis on. For many uh, English writers in in the 16th century, poetry in English was crude because it had this thumping thing, whereas poetry in Latin moved beautifully, and you could you could scan it, you could work out sonically exactly how every hexameter was indeed a hexameter, but it was it was all oddly in the head. I just um, wanted to pick pick that up. Um, Mohammed Salah's points about Arabic poetry, I've just learned a lot from the little bit you said, and I hope, I hope to learn more. It's a fascinating comparison. Um, just one, one issue, uh, and I'd be interested, maybe you could come back to me on this, the question of craft and gift. Um, 
There are moments in Homer, which I don't think have always been made enough of uh, by, by specialists, moments in Homer where the poet, it's also the performer, is both is described as both being given a gift from God. He's a divine, divine um, utterer of, 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 of you know these inspired words, but at the same time is is self-taught. Is a is a is someone who knows the craft, and and there's a it's either a tension or it's just a wonderful combination. But um, the ancient Greeks didn't seem to be able to couldn't decide whether to be a great poet was to just have a gift, or whether it was hard work and, and craft. And I'd be interested to know if there's any equivalent oscillation or tension in, in Arabic poetry. But I think I'll stop there, and thanks again for coming. Before we open for discussion, would any of the panelists like to come back to Derek about any of his observations, questions? Well, I think the point that you've just made about uh, craft and gift, the, the comparison with Arabic poetry, does kind of apply in, in archaic Greece. And I think there is a concept both that, that poetry is, is the gift of the muses, as Archilochus said, but also some idea that, that the poet works hard to um, exploit that. And maybe this is actually a reflection of how oral poetry works in that there is a, a sort of uh, a training and a technicality about it and the flexibility of the Homeric formula and all that. But obviously you need a moment of, of, of thinking what, what to talk about. Uh, so I think that's actually quite a sophisticated allusion mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. how oral poetry might have worked. But I'm intrigued to mm -hmm. know whether that is um, that, that works in the, the world of Arabic poetry as well. Um. <laughs> First of all, I think a lot of theorizing about Arabic poetry, we have to sort of keep in mind that it was done really, really late. Uh -huh. So, for example, when we, when we start thinking, okay, when, when, we, when do we begin to have prosody and people who looked at the poetry and actually put it in books and organized it in songs? This is a key moment because after it, you have a manual that you can follow. But before it, basically, you, um, you, you, you had largely orally composed poetry, mm. orally transmitted. A yeah. lot of it is formulaic in the sense of... Yeah, um, and, and, uh, because it basically it allows not only construction but also memorization. Mm. Um, so that whole... Um, that's, I think, where the point about doubt about when things were composed and what came to us is important because we, up, up to really, I think, least about 100 years after Islam, we don't have any written record of any poetry actually written, um, but we still talk about pre-Islamic poetry, people memorized it and so on. Mm -hmm. So these ideas, I think some of them are part of the myth, so to speak, of the poet, that they, they have their own whisper of wisdom. Mm -hmm. But as some of it, when you move to the Islamic period, becomes more or less kind of rivalry between a prophet and a poet. <laughs> and I must add here that, um, for example, Quran presents itself as an inimitable book in terms of language. So therefore, it comes directly as a challenge to poets, which makes us think it comes in a poetic kind of environment rather than a different kind of environment. 
So what, what I'm trying to say is that that line was probably blurred, but mm. when later uh, the craft was learned, particularly when you had when you began to have courts that are established in the Abbasid period or even a bit earlier, then you have poets trained. For example, Abu Nawas, who's in written, I think, uh, in the 10th century, was was mostly thinking. Uh, is, is it 9th century? Is he yet? Ten. Uh, his, uh, for example, says that basically that he got a training that uh, his the person who was training him in poetry said basically go and memorize ev everything and then try to forget it. Once you forget <laughs> it, you become a poet. <laughs> so this is just uh, basically a comment.